Christchurch, New Malden, 22nd of December 2019, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking in the series, Looking to the Coming of Jesus. Daniel. Big quiz, don't worry. Um, but how easily could you, you know, retell it or write it down if someone asked you to? Would you follow uh, one of the particular gospel accounts, Matthews, Luke's? Uh, would it be an amalgamation of the two? Would it become like a kind of traditional nativity story? A bit like the first Noel's uh, words which we just sang. Would it seem like a popular Christmas nativity play version? No room at the inn. Jesus born in a stable with the animals nearby. Despite that not actually occurring in the gospel accounts. Uh, and actually I think that's quite telling in some ways. Because we feel that maybe our perceived familiarity with the nativity story has made it into a festive drama, a traditional feel-good event, but perhaps at the cost of seeing the deeper drama unfolding within the text. The more familiar we are with a biblical story, the more difficult it is to view it outside of the way it has always been told and understood. But this morning, I want us to be able to focus on seeing the birth of Jesus afresh and appreciating the theological implications that were taking place with a little help from Daniel and Paul and some other Bible personalities. Now, just to cover off something early on, um, if you've been wondering when you're looking at the preaching program, uh, if it seemed a bit odd that in this series of looking to the coming of Jesus, we've looked at three prophets fairly standard, and are now looking at Daniel, then yes, you would be correct. I think it's slightly odd. Uh, there's certainly a lot in Daniel that is very eschatological and looks to the coming of the Messiah, but it's very much second coming of the Messiah. It's not really first arrival. You know, there's a reason we don't really have readings from Daniel featuring a service of nine lessons or carols or sea verses from Daniel appearing on Christmas cards. It's because the book isn't Christmassy. It's the end of the world's time, not child in a manger. Um, and yet, you know, when we consider these couple of verses from Daniel chapter 7 in reference to Christ's birth, it raises hugely significant and important theological issues that should really be, I think, at the heart of the Christmas story, but which are perhaps not quite ideal material for your school nativity play. Uh, but anyway, let's, let's look at it and see if we can see afresh, think afresh about the Christmas story. So Daniel writes, he says, And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man coming with the clouds. It's not really nativity material, unless perhaps you're buying into the whole stork thing about how babies are delivered and born. Um, and I'd love to see the production values of a school play of the Son of Man coming down. But, you know, but what we see, particularly at Christmas, is the reminder that Jesus Christ came into this world as the Saviour, the Messiah, the Promised One, Emmanuel, God with us. And that the Messiah would be born a man, 
a human being and the understanding of the fully divine and fully human nature of Christ is so important to getting our focus right on the Christmas story and the events that took place. That term, son of man, stands as a natural counterpart to son of God. It's an affirmation of the humanity of Jesus, just as the latter term is a complementary affirmation of his divinity. But perhaps it's not quite as simple and straightforward as that. The theologian Alistair McGrath notes that the term son of man, uh, the Hebrew ben Adam or Aramaic Barnasha, is used in three main contexts in the Old Testament. Firstly, as a form of address to the prophet Ezekiel. Secondly, to refer to future, to a future eschatological figure, such as those verses in, from Daniel, whose coming signals the end of history and the coming of divine judgment. And thirdly, it's often used to emphasize the contrast between the lowliness and fragility of human nature and the elevated status and permanence of God and the angels, as you may find in Numbers chapter 23 or Psalm 8. And the third of those meanings is perhaps the one that we might consider most naturally when considering the humanity of Jesus and may underlie at least some of the references in the gospel. But it's the second use of the term which has not surprisingly attracted much of the scholarly attention and is what we're considering this morning. The predominant scholarly view is that these verses from Daniel, particularly when seen within the wider context of chapter 7, point to the expectation of the coming of a son of man at the end of history. And some scholars will argue that this expectation was also shared by Jesus. He also prophesied to those around him about this coming of the Son of Man. The term occurs 81 times in the Greek text of the four Gospels and is used only by Jesus. And some have argued that the term refers to a figure other than Jesus of the Gospels. And unlike Son of God, it's also a term that we do not profess in any of the creeds we regularly say in church. But other people have argued that the early church took to merging this figure of Jesus and the term son of man and began to understand them to mean one and the same. And when we take this approach to the coming of Christ at his birth, we are able to focus on the humanity of Jesus and understand what this would entail. The divine saviour but also the suffering servant, one who would experience human pain and suffering, one who would develop human relationships with those around him, inspiring those who encountered him with his teaching and authority, his love and compassion, and one who would be judged as a man by those in power around him. But of course, that image that we get from Daniel is anything but a lowly, humble person. The, the Son of Man is also this mighty, powerful figure. And that's why I think that when we consider these verses in Daniel alongside the imagery of the traditional nativity, it's so amazing. Because we are forced to see both the child in the manger and the Messiah, the saviour of all humankind, as present at Jesus' birth. 
It's a baby born into humble beginnings. It's God. It's Jesus of Nazareth who will grow up to face terrible sufferings. It's Jesus, the risen king, who has defeated death and broken down the barrier of sin that separates us separated us from God. It's Emmanuel, God with us. It's the arrival of a figure, both fully human and fully divine. And it's an event that was marked by the appearance of a great star in the sky that led Magi to come and worship, and which was announced by a heavenly choir of angels to humble shepherds out on a hillside. It's this massive, explosive moment in history that needs to be viewed as something more, something so much more than the traditional, peaceful, comforting nativity scene that often comes to mind when we think of it. The theological significance of the nativity of Jesus has been a key element in Christian teachings from the beginnings of the early church. And so it was to Paul, but I also want us to turn when seeing the birth of Jesus as the arrival of the Son of God and the Son of Man. (coughs) Paul viewed the birth of Jesus as an event of cosmic significance, which brought forth a new man who undid the damage caused by the fall of the first man, Adam. Just as John, at the start of his gospel, views Jesus as the incarnate logos, the word, and proclaims this universal significance of his birth, the Pauline perspective emphasizes the birth of a new man and a new world in the birth of Jesus. Paul's eschatological view of Jesus counterpositions him as a new man of godliness and obedience in contrast to Adam. Unlike Adam, the new man born in Jesus obeys God and ushers in a world of love and salvation. In Paul's view, Adam is positioned as the first man and Jesus as the second. Adam, having corrupted himself by his disobedience, also infecting humanity with sin, and left it with a curse as our inheritance. And then the birth of Jesus, on the other hand, counterbalancing that fall of man through Adam, bringing forth redemption to humankind, repairing the damage done. Paul's contrasting of Jesus as the new man versus Adam provides a setting to consider the uniqueness of the birth of Jesus and the ensuing events of his life. The nativity of Jesus thus began to serve as the starting point for this cosmic Christology in which the birth, life, and resurrection of Jesus have universal implications. This concept of Jesus and Paul as the new man repeats in the cycle of birth and rebirth of Jesus from his nativity to his resurrection. Following his birth, throughout his life of obedience to the Father, Jesus began a new harmony in this relationship between God the Father and man. The nativity and resurrection of Jesus set him as not only the author, but also the model for a new humankind. Uh, Now, of course, this understanding of Jesus at his birth has also led to theological problems with Many theologians debating whether Jesus 
Was he man born of woman or was he God born of woman? Do we see Mary as the Theotokos, the bearer of God? Did God perhaps adopt Jesus at his baptism, therefore bestowing the divinity on him at that point? Was Jesus some hybrid being, green, you know, human yellow, godly blue makes green Jesus? Well, we're not going to look at the various debates, particularly as most of them were declared heresies, fortunately, by various councils in the fourth and fifth centuries. But what we believe and what we understand is this uniqueness of Christ, this incredible concept of being both fully human and fully divine. And I love Paul's language in Colossians 1. He said, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, he writes in verse 19. To have all his fullness dwell in him. And as Paul states later on in verse 26, this is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. Christ the Savior. It was the mystery that was proclaimed to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, that was announced by the angel Gabriel to Mary, that was declared by Simeon and Anna in the temple 40 days after Jesus' birth. And it's the Christ figure we see throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. When we look at the Gospels, particularly Mark's one, we find this palpably human Jesus. He refers to himself as a prophet. He fends off the laudatory, laudatory titles that others would give him and calls himself simply Son of Man, created in God's image. He, he plays down the healing miracles that he performs. The Son of Man is not a man as other men are but appeared as other men. It's a comparison. When we think of the divine and human nature of Jesus Christ, his two natures working perfectly together. And this divine nature is reflected in the fact that he appears in Daniel, in the Daniel reading, with the clouds of heaven. There's the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the term Jesus used to identify himself with humanity. It speaks of his lowliness, humanity, patience, as well as his triumph and victory and glory. As we said, he uses the term over 80 times in the Gospels as a substitute for I. He used it when making great claims on men and when referring to his suffering, death and resurrection. But he also uses it when speaking of his future glory and his coming again. In the book of Revelation, he's seen in the opening chapters as possessing all power in heaven and earth. He takes the scroll with the seals and opens it. And Daniel sees the same person coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And Jesus himself referring to himself as the same. Jesus told the high priest at his trial... You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and he almost had a complete meltdown. This is why they pressed that night to have Jesus killed and crucified him the next day. And on another occasion in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, The Son of Man shall come in his glory with all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
At that time, his throne will be established, and all nations shall gather before him and worship him. The Lord God is sovereign control of all history. The promised kingdom in Daniel is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. It is now and it is yet to be, in that it is already present in the coming of Jesus at his birth and through his life and death and resurrection and will reach its consummation when he returns in glory at the second coming. We proclaim the kingdom of God when we preach the death of Jesus for our sins and our resurrection and his resurrection. And we enter the kingdom when we repent and put our faith in Christ Jesus. Daniel gives us this absolute assurance that there shall finally come an eternal dominion by the Messiah. And it's a double statement which we see in verse 14, this everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And the parallel statement reinforces the duration of God's kingdom. It says, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. This kingdom will be established for all eternity. The title, Son of Man, has such a depth of meaning and understanding to who Jesus was and is. And just why the birth of the Savior, who was laid in a manger, is such a momentous event in history. Son of God. Son of Man. The Son of Man is also the suffering servant of God who will reign eternally as the King of glory. I'm just going to end by reading some verses from Hebrews chapter 5, which I think really sum up well this understanding of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him.